morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. We've got a full house in the studio. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we did um, a show on critical election theory. And we got some denunciations that we were doing critical race theory. And this today, we have uh, Holly Pluke. And she's produced a show on critical race theory. So we're actually doing the topic that we were denounced for uh, two weeks ago. So uh, welcome to the show. I'm going to have people, Holly, how are you going to have people introduce themselves? Because we have two guests here in the studio, plus Holly, plus a caller. So it's yes, kind of complicated. We we'll start with Frankie. Okay. Francis. Julia Reamer. <laughs> Hi, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. This is Frances Reamer, unknown as Frankie to my Sedona friends and colleagues. Um, I'm a professor at NAU. I'm an educational anthropologist, and I also teach in women's and gender studies. I teach theory. Classes in critical race theory is one of the theories that frame many of my students' doctoral dissertations. And, of course, it's a theory that we talk about and my students talk about. Many of my students are, many of our students are principals and superintendents. And so these are issues that they deal with in their schools and classrooms. I'll turn over to my colleague, Angelina Castegno. Great. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. My name is Angelina Castaño. Um, I am also a professor at Northern Arizona University in the College of Education. I also serve as the director for the Institute for Native Serving Educators, which is in the Office of Native American Initiatives at NAU. Um, and like Francis, I teach a number of undergraduate and graduate level classes that include uh, theories around race, uh, critical race theory and whiteness. I also teach uh, related to issues of indigenous or American Indian education. And I work with a lot of teachers um, and school leaders across the state um, and across the country as well. So just really happy to be here. Um, and I will turn it over to you, Ijoma. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm sorry, you uh, caller. Ijoma? Can you all hear me? No. Uh, maybe louder. Can you, can you mic him up? So what, you could start, and then they're going to amp you up as you talk. Okay, that's uh, that's all good. Uh, so my name is Dr. Ijoma Ananuju. Uh Most folks uh, who know me call me Doc. Um, I wish I had all of the glorious and eloquent titles that my colleagues have, but I'm just a regular dude who teaches uh, at Northern Arizona University in the Educational Leadership Department, and uh, really happy to be here with you all. Critical race theory has been a big part of uh, my life as a scholar, um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be able to have a conversation about it. So, Holly, how are we going to start this? You produced the show. You you turned up all these strange people to talk to us. So how do we start critical race theory? What I my last search, which I think was really interesting, folks, I had done a lot of stuff on research on critical race theory. I asked the question I hadn't asked before is when did the campaign against critical race theory 
evolve and, and get created? That was my that was my question. I traced it back to the fall of 2020 and uh, to a particular fellow in uh, Seattle area. So so I want I asked that question. How did this start? Because critical race theory is something, as you can hear, is, is, is something, basically an academic theory. Uh, Last week or the week before, we talked. I talked with Karen uh, McClellan, who's been on the Sedona School Board for a long time. And as far as she can tell, there is no primary school, no secondary school in Arizona that's actually teaching this at all. Holly? Well, and that's the question. This critical race theory emerged from a book in 1973. So 50 years later, what's all this fuss about? Yeah, because it sits in academia all these years, and then something happens, and it, it becomes, well, for those of us who've been in politics a long time, particularly Democrat, we've seen one Republican conservative culture war campaign after another. They always come up with something, and this is their latest thing. I mean, they're campaigning against critical race theory, which is is, is, is not taught in, in, in school, and a lot of legislation is going out there banning something that's not being done. And we're going to so talk this is about typical of Republican politics. Can I, can I jump in? Sure. sure. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for Okay. Frankie. So I have a, re- I, I have a really uh, good way of thinking about this. Um, it's a very loud manufactured concern that has gained traction. But just because it's manufactured doesn't mean it's not a concern. So we have to remember that, that it has stirred up a lot of parents, um, but it's a manufactured concern. And this one is very easy to trace because, as Steve, you said it's not that long ago. Um, Christopher Rufus, uh, Rufo in uh, Seattle, right, is a, is a guy who's sort of waiting for something and somebody gives him a tip about an affirmative action training and he starts uh, looking into it. He gets some documents from the Freedom of Information Act. He starts tweeting and then he gets on the Tucker Carlson show. And then our former president hears him on the Tucker Carlson show and Mark Meadows gives him an invite to the White House. And suddenly Christopher Rufo and our former president are drafting an executive order against critical race theory. And then this guy is so super smart. So he goes back. He now, of course, has is well established in right wing think tanks. He goes back. He starts a tip line. So then he gets all of these tips from school from who knows who where across the country, right? And many of them, and we know what these tips are like, right? All kinds of accusations that uh, uh, that include any and all talk about pretty much any and all things that um, that that the right wing might accuse the schools of doing um, all I think that we we can argue part of a campaign to um, to erode the public schools right part of the privatization campaign so it works really well we get Betsy DeVos talking about it now it's a really nice uh, and and of course, um, there's this notion that uh, critical race theory is a catchier term than cancel culture. Then remember that woke was a term for a while, but critical race theory seems to seem to hook. And here we are. 
And, of course, the uh, Arizona has legislation, right? And it's part of a package of le- legislation that was um, at least passed through the Goldwater Institute. And now, of course, many, many states are, um, are using this same broilerplate legislative model to, to uh, punish teachers and to control schools. Some of the some of the new legislation is really draconian in terms of what it does to people who who teach this theory. This is all happening when almost nobody except the guys sitting in this room know what critical race theory actually is, how yeah. it started, why it was. The, and I, to me, I don't think that Democrats should adopt any particular academic theory, but they should be open to listening to what critical race theory has to say. Mm-hmm. And Let me- um, let me just chime in here real quick. Sure. Because one of the things that I think makes this conversation, not this particular conversation, but the conversation about critical race theories in K-12 schooling and oxymoron is that um, this particular theory, not only is it high-level academics and typically only seen in uh, graduate-level education, but it's a theory that typically will see more folks of color gravitate towards it than non-folks of color. And the reason why I say that is because last time I looked, the majority of the teaching force is still Caucasian. And in a lot of these places where folks are railing against critical race theory, like the numbers of folks of color who are serving as educators in those schools, in those cities, in those regions are very, 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 very minimal. And so the question then becomes who's teaching this theory, right? Like, like if you have someone like me who is a 300 pound dark skinned black man who like has based his life in critical race theory, then you have every reason to stand up and, and because there's a probability that I may be, using some of that theory to teach. But if the majority of your teaching force looks like you and thinks like you and responds to the world in the way that you do, then what you're really complaining about is the possibility that someone may learn their history and and that that history may not jive with this idea that America has always been a savior as opposed to America has its own warts and blemishes too. And that's really what the fight is about. It is the same thing that we saw in Tucson uh, 10 years ago, right? We don't want our minority students to learn more about themselves and their relationship that is not anti- that is not in line with the Disney, you know, everything is roses and beautiful uh, understanding of our relationship with America. And that's where a lot of this tension is coming from. Well, yeah, if, uh, the uh, Tucson thing—they banned uh, classes, right? Uh, it was a, it was, and that's about ten years ago. Ethnic right? studies yeah. and Mexican American so studies. Critical race theory as something that they're, that they're uh, tremendously upset about, but they're—and I was talking to Karen. Uh, but they're upset about any training that really refers to race and and class and stuff like that. And why don't we talk about racism? What, why? And, and and what this looks like. Yeah, so um, if 
can we jump back just a moment sure. and say a bit about what is critical race yeah, theory? Because I think this helps us answer the question that you raise, Holly, about why don't we talk about racism? And I think Ijoma spoke to this and and started to get us there, but it might be helpful just to lay a little bit of groundwork about what critical race theory actually is um, and the sort of history of how it even came into the field of education to begin with. So um, I, I think it's important to start out with the word theory, right? A theory is an explanation or a set of ideas to help us make sense of something in our world. So so I think that's the first important point, that this is a this is a set of ideas, an explanation for understanding inequality in our communities and in our society. And there are multiple theories, right? There are multiple explanations for why inequality exists. Critical race theory is one of them. It started in the legal field um, by folks like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado back in the 1970s. So to your point, about 50 years ago. It was brought to the field of education by Gloria Ladson Billings and William Tate in the mid-90s, and they published an article that's now widely cited called Towards a Critical Race Theory of Education. And this is what scholars do, right? We, we read, we look for ideas that help us explain conundrums, that help us, help us, us explain things that are happening so that we can hopefully think about what to do about them. Um, and so it was brought to the field of education in the mid-90s. Uh, and since then, we've seen a sort of uptick in scholars and researchers taking up this idea because I would say it works. It's effective, right? So so people who study these things don't continue to use theories that don't make sense it or that don't work. I think work. it resonates it for resonates. people. It yes. makes sense. It helps Absolutely. them make sense of what they're seeing. Absolutely. And so... In this case, critical race theory says racism is everywhere, and that makes people uncomfortable, to your point, Holly, of, well, well why, why is it hard for us to talk about racism? And to Ijoma's point, we're talking about a still largely white, middle-class, English-dominant um, workforce in the field of education that the system has worked for us. Like, we have moved through the system, and we have seen success of, of ourselves, of our children, um, and so when we're faced with a set of ideas that disrupt that, that say, well, maybe your success is not just because of your hard work. Maybe it's also because laws, policies, um, systems have also um, made the starting line not even. That makes us uncomfortable because then I start to think, oh, you mean it wasn't just my hard work. It wasn't just the fact that I studied hard. And that makes us uncomfortable. And so then we don't want to engage that. So then we come up with other kinds of explanations, other kinds of ways of trying to think about this. And critical race theory forces us to stay in that space of looking at policies, looking at laws, looking at our systems. And that's hard for some of us to do. But it's it hard forces for all of that, us, really. right? It's very yeah. hard because it completely turns around everything we've been taught. Right, right. So... Do you think that a class called whiteness might inflame the situation? <laughs> it, it, it absolutely does. Um, and, I mean, right here in our state, uh, we have a colleague down at Arizona State University who faced, uh, in the English department, who faced significant um, resistance and harm and um, bias when he taught a class around whiteness. 
Um, up at NAU, uh, we haven't quite seen that level of resistance around the classes, but it's in part maybe because of the ways in which um, we think about and name the classes, and we've had very open conversations about how do we use terms like critical race theory, how do we use terms like whiteness in course catalogs and in our syllabi, um, because we do live in a political context um, that is very polarized right now, and so it, it makes it tough. But I think, the, you know, when I, when I read um, the kinds of things that Rufo collected from mm-hmm. Seattle training, right, the, a lot of those phrases will infuriate mm-hmm. not only conservatives, mm-hmm. but anyone who believes in liberalism mm-hmm. and objectivity. Uh, and so, it, so critical race theory is, is, uh, is controversial, and I guess that's part of its power, right, Holly? I mean, the fact, if it wasn't controversial, it wouldn't be doing anything. Is it part of the power or part of the hook? Seems like it's part of the hook. I, I feel I feel that uh, in a political campaign, uh, and we know this from the previous president's campaign, uh, you put out feelers, and if something hooks, then you're going to use that. And so it seems that this, I think, parents are always a uh, an interesting constituency, and particularly white parents, because this has inflamed white parents, right? And so, what does that, so it get and so that means that it gets back to this notion of discomfort that this is discomforting. We don't know how to talk about these things, and there are lots of mistakes that get made when we're talking about these things because part of learning is making mistakes, right? And so, in a tip line that encourages Fox News folks to send in worst case scenarios, you're going to get anecdotes that are, yes, of course, cringeworthy for all of us. And that even if we didn't have the term critical race theory, somebody might have gone into this teacher or this facilitator and said, I'm not sure this is working, right? Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing conversation. But if we're looking for trouble, you know, if any of us get audited by the IRS, the IRS is going to find something. This is the same. If you audit classrooms, you're going to find you're going to find people who are doing things that out of context or sometimes even in context can be a problem. But I, I don't feel that that is in any way in, indicative of the way that teachers and school leaders are trying to do this work with their students. I think that's a good point. I just wanted to add that um, a lot of belief is that this issue and parental control or having a parental voice in the school was a big issue in the Virginia yeah. race. Sure. Virginia has shifted me from a Republican state to a Democratic state. No, the it, reverse. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the and, reverse. <laughs> yeah. And then it, um, it turned back to a Republican state based on a campaign about teach, uh, no student, uh, not even student or teacher right, but parental, parental rights, rights over what's being taught. So a lot of white parents listen to this stuff and they see the rhetoric around whiteness, and it looks to them like reverse racism, and they've certainly been able to convince a lot of people that that's what's going on. So why isn't that what's going on? Well, but there were mistakes made in that campaign as well. I'd like to ask our guests, do you think that parents are a stakeholder and have a right to an opinion and a voice? Of course. Of course. <laughs> We're and, both and this, parents. Yes. I, I mean, I have two children in the public school system in Flagstaff right now. One is in middle school. One is in elementary school. And 
I would put money on if you ask any of their teachers throughout the years, you know, if if I have been involved and have wanted to know about things happening in their classroom, they would say with a resounding yes. Um, but we don't need legislation for this to happen, right? Um, as a parent, it is it is not that hard for me to reach out to a teacher and say, hey, can I have a conversation with you? Can you tell me a little bit more about what my child has learned last week about the Constitution or what my child learned last month about what it means to be a, a community member in northern Arizona, right? Like, this is a, to me, this is not the issue. To me, the issue, to get back to a couple of things said earlier, are one around um, school choice and wanting to dismantle the public system of education, which is an ongoing battle, and this is just one more sort of um, uh, effort to do that. It's also about, to Ijoma's point, about the demographics of our education system um, and trying to sort of create additional wedge issues uh, between white parents and white teachers and uh, parents and teachers of color. But the third thing I would add is I also think this is about the deprofessionalization of teachers. And mm -hmm. um, forever, we have not viewed teachers as professionals. We don't pay them as professionals. We don't view them as um having an important set of expertise. And so this is one more way to position teachers as not being professionals, right? Because if we trusted teachers as professionals to teach our children and to do their jobs and to be creative in the ways in which they engage students, we would not be legislating things that produce fear in them um, and, that, and that send the message that they don't know what they're doing. And that silences them. Right, yes. And since... Teachers, administrators, principals are your students. What are they saying? Yeah. How is this uh, impacting them and their ability to manage their schools or teach in the classroom? Yeah. Ijoma, do you want to speak to that? I know it can be hard to be on the phone when we can't when we're not all in the same room. No, it's all good. Like I always uh, defer to to you all's expertise, and it's, uh, I, I think um, at least for me. It has not been that much of of an effect. Mm -hmm. um, the the schools and communities that I work in, you know, uh, in 1963, James Baldwin gave a talk to teachers, and mm -hmm. and in the beginning of that talk, he says that uh, anyone who is willing to fight against this aspect of our society, you got to be willing to go for broke. But you also have to understand that when you do go for broke, that your opposition is going to do everything that they can to fight back against you. Mm -hmm. Because what we don't like more than anything else is change. I, I don't like the idea of, of my status quo being disrupted. And so for the, the folks in the communities that I work with, this, this has been anticipated. Right. This is this is nothing different than what we've seen our entire lives as as people who are fighting for justice in in systems that sometimes can be unjust. Right. You know that you're going to get the most bitter opposition against the things that you are trying to do, which is simply at least at least in terms of the way that 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 I and we apply critical race theory is how do we empower our youth? How do we empower our community to know that they are more than the narratives that often proliferate throughout society about them? Mm 
right? Mm-hmm. How do we get them to understand that their experiences in this world are validated? And so when you when when that is your mission as an educator is to really help your students achieve actualization, then when you come up against opposition, you don't flinch, but but if anything, right, you go hard in the paint. That mm-hmm. that's when you if you're like Shaquille O'Neal, right, that's when you pass the ball out, you you, you drop that butt a little bit, you back up a little bit more, you get closer to the basket. Why? because this is a battle. We're going to be in this all day, right? And so I haven't had many folks that have, have, have flinched um, or, or have backed down or, or have uh, uh, shied away from it. But I would also say that if someone did, one, I, I would not, you know, be upset if someone did because we're talking about people's livelihoods here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but two, I would say, like, for me, part of that theory is an embodiment of a way of being. And so it's not so much of, of a theory as much as it is like, hey, understanding race is essential to me being able to function properly in this space, mm-hmm. right? Because my experiences are so much different than other folks that I'm like, I need something to help me understand why when I go to the grocery store, when I go to the mall, when I pump my gas, when I do anything in life, I'm seeing a difference. I'm feeling a difference, right? And so I really haven't experienced that, but, you know, I'll let my colleagues speak to some of the schools and and the administrators and folks that they work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would, just to build on on what you've said, I, so to give a little bit of history around the particular class that I've taught that's very squarely about critical race theory at the graduate level. We I developed this class in collaboration with colleagues probably about 12-ish years ago, and it was first offered at the graduate level up at NAU as an, as an optional class, and then we moved it to a required class, and then it was removed entirely, and now it's back into our system. And I won't go into um, some of the, the discussions around that. But what I will say is that every single time I have taught this class to graduate students who are current administrators and teachers, either in K-12 schools or community colleges and higher education, they have said with a very strong voice that this ought to be required for every student in education and that they wish they had gotten this sort of opportunity to discuss race and to discuss racism and to discuss inequality much earlier in their college careers because it could have um, informed the ways in which they operated in schools and it could have informed the ways in which they think about policies and practices to better serve students. Um, So to your question directly, Holly, students, in my experience, are craving opportunities to talk about race and to talk about racism and to talk about sexism and to talk about homophobia, all of these things and the ways in which they they work together. Because in education, and going back to Gloria Ladson-Billings, she had another article called, What is Critical Race Theory Doing in a Nice Field Like Education? And I think that captures it so well because in education, we are socialized in so many ways to not rock the boat, to not create controversy. And any mention of diversity is framed through these manufactured debates, right, as controversial and uncomfortable. And so we have to become more practiced 
and educators want to become more practiced at how to do this. Um, I think that from conservative point of view, which is, you know, the country is almost split 50-50. And um, I've worked with a lot of conservative guys, for example. They have just totally opposite attitudes. So what can you do to show to show parents and other interested people that this is not some distorted thing that's going to make things worse. Because mm. the conservative line, as I understand it, is critical race theory and anything uh, touching these issues is just going to make things worse. Diversity, everything is going to make things worse. Why isn't it going to make anything worse? And shame and, and cause students to feel shame about who they are. And discomfort, right, discomfort. You know, I think that... that um uh, when I when I talked I taught this weekend and so uh, to in a, it's a doc program but many principal superintendents the same the same population the same students practically um, they are getting a lot of complaints from parents they're inundated from parents um, and they need ways of talking to those parents they need ways to think about how do you invite parents into schools right because as I mean, as like Angelina, I also have a son now grown, but I was very involved. I was on the site council at his school when there were site councils. Um, I knew his teachers. That's parents should have that relationship. Ten years ago, we were complaining that parents weren't involved enough in schools. <laughs> we should be happy that parents are involved. But again, I mean, if we go back to the race in uh, the gov- the gubernatorial race in. The- Virginia, the, the the Democratic candidate made real mistakes in talking about inviting parents or not inviting parents into schools. I mean, that is not, and and that's not easy either. I mean, we need practice to do all of these things. These are brand new for many many of us and many many of our, our for teachers, white folks for our teachers especially yeah particularly <laughs> for white folks that's right yeah. and and so um, I think that it's that it's. That schools are places where we are allowed to learn about things, and we have the opportunity to meet people who are different from us, and we have an opportunity to talk about that and to become better citizens. But you understand how the 44% of conservative Trump voters are enraged by this stuff. They do not trust you to be able to talk fairly about race, particularly to white students. They just don't think you're going to do it. They think you're going to, you're teaching some distorted, weird Marxist theory to the, to, they, they think it's happening in elementary schools, which is nonsense. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the charge. So, Frankie, sure. what would you say to that? Well, I mean, I think that... Isn't that the, oh, go ahead, Ijeoma. Why don't you go first? I was going to say, you, you just said the two buzzwords that, that makes this conversation extremely difficult to have, and that is Marxism <laughs> um, and race, right? <laughs> like, the pairing of those two for those individuals makes any conversation about it a non-starter, right? And, and, and so for me, it's, it's very difficult to have that conversation because they don't want to talk about race. They don't want to even entertain the possibility that people who are not of the same color can have a different experience in America because they have been sold on this idea that America is equal in justice to all individuals, and they want to go back to this space where publicly we are colorblind, even though privately, right, we we 
hold hardcore discriminations against certain individuals based on their race and the color of their skin. Uh, and then there is the other piece of, like, Marxism, right, which we have established Marxism as the enemy of uh, capitalism and a free economy. And when you have a situation like what is happening in Eastern Europe right now, that that just reinforces to a lot of those folks the dangers of having any type of socialist, Marxist-type society, even though, for many of these same folks, a capitalist society has not been very kind to them economically, right? But it's just the possibility that one day I can be this ultra-rich individual, even though I'm living in abject poverty right now, that gets a lot of folks to say, like, I want to reject this idea of what Marxism can be, right? And so that makes the conversation, like, extremely difficult. And any conversation with them, you have to, like, kind of figure out a way, like, how do I navigate those two landmines in order to be able to have any type of productive conversation? But it's actually worked. Um, when I work with conservatives, they believe that um, affirmative action that's been going on since the 60s is actually anti-white. It's actually hurt them. And when you work with them, they have all these stories. You know, my dad was teaching uh, accounting at the University of San Diego, and he was replaced by a black woman who wasn't as good as he is. Now, everybody always thinks they're the best. So these stories are a little bit – it's, it's even worse than that in that they say that all the, the improvements in fairness that have existed, which are still very limited, they think they've been negative for them and their families. It's very personal. It's very hard to argue with them. I can't. When I, when I argued with the guy, I said, well, do you know that she was not as qualified, you know, et cetera. You get in these long things. But I'm, but I will tell you that these narratives of, of anti-white discrimination is what they believe is happening are going around and circulating with families and they're Mm -hmm. turning like an Irish Catholic Democratic family into a Reagan family. Mm -hmm. Sure. So... I think that all of these, I think that all of these wedge issues, though, are the same. I mean, climate change is the same. Very difficult to talk about across across camps, right? And um, it seems to me that we have to work on two levels. One, we have to work on the legislative level definitely because the Arizona bill right was um was was proven on that the, the judges rescinded it last year right because it had it did not go through in in the procedural way so i think legislatively we have to push back as well and, and there are many bills right now before the state legislature yes, par- and there's there's one bill now in Arizona and bills in 26 other states so this is rampant but i also think that we have to make personal we have to have we have to work on the on the personal level as well we have to talk to each other we have to talk to each other as people in community and um and 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 try to build community around around these contacts and then see slowly how we can move forward i mean if i knew how to do this then i would be making a super lot of money right so that would be good but i think that I just had to talk about climate change last week, and that is sort of what came out of that conversation, that we have to build community, and through our local understandings of community, we need to tackle these issues. Yeah, I also I also think that we need to be able to ask questions. So when I hear some of the, the critiques and the narratives that you bring up, my first question, earlier you mentioned um, it will make things worse. And so 
one question that that raises for me is worse for whom and what do you mean by worse? You know, can you tell me more like what what do you mean it will make it worse? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And to be able to engage in those converse in those kinds of conversations. I also think a couple of things looking at broad scale data. So if we're talking about individual stories about affirmative action or what folks call affirmative action, Um, And the narrative around that that has hurt white people. Well, if we look to national data around college admissions, around other kinds of data points, we can actually see that the most um, the largest beneficiary of affirmative action policies were folks like me, white women. Um, And so being able to have that conversation is important. And then the third thing is to make connections across different identity groups. So for example, if we can have a conversation about the ways in which um, working class white folks are actually harmed by certain kinds of policies that are also harming communities of color, then that might be a way to build community and and to sort of think about relationships across communities that are currently um, very divided by some of these issues. So how is it that we're all harmed uh, by a particular policy, by a particular zero tolerance policy around discipline in schools? Um, how is how is it that that explain is... Explain what that is, a zero... Explain that for folks. What sure, that sorry. Um, and so basically a zero tolerance policy means if you... Um, break any sort of disciplinary rule, there are no quote-unquote warnings. You're just immediately suspended. You're immediately expelled from school. And so there are no efforts at restoration. There are no efforts at education around why might someone have done that? How might that have harmed the person next to you? How can we have a conversation about that harm? And how can we repair that harm? It's simply get out of the school because you've broken this rule. Um, And we know that those policies disproportionately hurt um, students of color. They also disproportionately hurt students for whom English is not their first language, students who have disabilities. And so if we can begin to have those conversations um, with a white family who has a student with an IEP, who has a a disability in schools and the ways in which a policy is hurting them in the same way that it's hurting a family of color, Um, whose son is African-American and has been harmed by that same policy, perhaps those are ways we can begin to create um, coalitions and collaborations and community. I think that's that's excellent. I think that's an excellent example. I want to piggyback on what uh, Angelina is saying um, and and validated in saying that, you know, when I have these conversations, I'm, I'm working with a group now, and there's a large number of conservative folks in that group. The one thing that I realized when I took a step back is, like, a lot of these folks are coming from a place of fear. Right. And I think about what happens when I am talking from a place of fear. The one thing that I want more than anything else is to be heard, Mm -hmm. to be validated. Like, I think we forget the humanity that exists in all of this, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what side of the line you are on. At the end of the day, you are still a human being, which means that fundamentally we have a lot of things in common, like, wanting to be heard, wanting to be validated, wanting to have your fears alleviated. You see the world is changing. You're trying to figure out how do you fit in. You may have some prejudices that you are dealing with, but ultimately at the end of the day, most folks want to be seen as good because it's better to be a good human than to be a bad human, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
we get into this space sometimes, I think, where I'm so quick to tell you that you're wrong, to tell you that your perspective is wrong, to tell you that you uh, are, are incorrect in, in your feelings, and that makes a person put up a wall. You won't even validate how I feel right now. And validation doesn't mean that I agree. It just means that I, as an individual, can say, you know what, I hear you and I understand what you're saying. I want to have the conversation with you about how things aren't exactly how you perceive, but I also understand that before I can have that conversation, I have to at first acknowledge the fact that you are perceiving the world in the way that you are perceiving it. And if I deny you that one basic right as a human being, then I will never, ever, ever be able to have a conversation. And we like to start conversations with the word no. Mm-hmm. No, that's not right. No, that's not how you're supposed to feel. No, you're in- Well, as soon as you say no, I can't hear anything else you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what, you know, for me and my work, that's why I really try to, okay, talk to me. Let me understand you. Let me understand why you feel. Now can you listen to me? Can we spend more time not talking to each other and listening than we are in, in, in having to have a rebuttal for what the other person says, right? That, that's the space that I really try to get to because once we can get there and we can start listening to each other, then we get to that place that Angelina is talking about where it's like, oh, wow, we got a lot in common. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So has there more been any time. outcome that you can share with us in which – this converse, these conversations have created something positive. Oh, we. Well, are you speaking specifically to me? I, yes, I I'm speaking to you, Doug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this happens all the time. I think uh, most recently, uh, I was working uh, with the organization in, in Southern California, um, and I said that. You know, there are a limited number of lawyer jobs, doctor jobs, you know, those type of jobs that are high paying, et cetera, et cetera. And when you think about how economically we're experiencing nine and a half percent inflation, which means that my money doesn't go as far as it used to go. But in that, our economy cannot just create high wage jobs. There have to be low wage jobs as well. And so when someone says, like, hey, like, you all are trying to take our jobs. Yeah, we are. We are trying. Like, I'm not trying to be uh, glib here, but it's to say, like, if there are only 10 doctor jobs and all 10 of those jobs are employed by white men, then me as a black man, if I'm trying to get one of those doctor jobs, guess what? Unless we create more doctor jobs, one of those white men have to lose their jobs, Right. And so it's the acknowledgement that, hey, I'm not trying to deny your experiences, but but I'm going to validate your experience and then say, like, but now let's figure out a way to where you don't have to lose a job, but there are jobs that are created for me. When I had that conversation with this group, I had two men come afterwards and said, like, hey, man, like, we were going to walk out of the room when we seen that you were giving us the presentation. But the fact that you, like, were speaking to our pain 
actually made us want to sit down. We're uh, we're out of time. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We've got one no, minute. It's all good. We, yeah, um, appreciate you coming on the show. We have three human beings sitting here on the three guests and one voice from the from afar. But I uh, appreciate your contribution. Um, I'd like to thank the, our supporters. Uh, obviously, Democratic Perspective, after 11 years, is suddenly in um, some economic difficulty. We would really appreciate your donations. If you would go to our webpage, not the Facebook page, but our webpage, there's a little button that you can press to donate. We'd like to thank the Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support for all these years. We'd like to thank the Yavapai County Democratic Organization. And uh, El Portal. And thanks so much for having us. Yes, and thank you for joining us today. We could have continued talking for several more hours. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.